Why Lawyers Rule American Politics, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Lawyers are involved in most major decisions in the United States. They control the courts in our highly litigious society. They stock the administration and even the legislatures. And that's no accident. Lawyers set up the institutions to ensure they'd continue to run the show. But today they face a political challenge because they are far more liberal than elected officials or citizens, and conservatives are fighting back. This week, I talked to Adam Bonica of Stanford University and Maya Sin of Harvard University about their Cambridge book, The Judicial Tug of War. They track the fights between politicians and lawyers to select federal and state judges, finding increasing polarization in the federal courts and strategic action in the states. But they say the fights haven't yet changed our fundamental lawyer rule. Attorneys still pass legislation to benefit themselves and still organize the judiciary to keep it under their control. I heard Bonica and Sin at a recent conference on American political economy, and followed up to hear more. Our conversation started with a summary of the book from Maya Sin. So I think there are basically two parts to the book. So what we do in the first part is we document and show the sheer power of the legal profession over all aspects of politics. And by that we mean, we really do mean all aspects of politics. We mean the, the, not just the judiciary, but also the legislative branches and the executive. Um, And because the legal profession is so politically powerful, it's been able to extract a lot of its preferred policy positions across a wide variety of issues, Um, but specifically on issues that are important to it as a profession. So the United States, which has the most lawyers per per capita of any country in the world, also has like the highest revenues per attorney. Um, It also turns over a lot of its regulatory state to the judicial system. It also has the highest share of people incarcerated and having to litigate for their freedom. Um, So that's sort of the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, we transition and look specifically at the judiciary. And the judiciary is really interesting because we're, we're a country where we've ceded basically a third of government, so the entire judiciary, over to the legal profession. And so the second half of the book really questions like what that means for the judiciary and what that means, given that the legal profession has its own viewpoint and its own preferences. And oftentimes these jive with political elites, but oftentimes the legal profession is in a, in a very distinct uh, tension with, legal, uh, with political elites. Um, and when you see that tension, when political elites are at odds with the legal profession, that's when you see a lot of what we would call like attempts at judicial reform. Um, and right now, one of the things we document in the book is that right now what you really see a lot of is um, political elites in the Republican Party really butting heads with legal elites across the states. And a lot of that tension and conflict has boiled over into reforms at the state court level. And that's that's something that we document very extensively in the book. So Adam, give us some of the backstory behind uh, the, the book. How did the, your collaboration uh, come together? Uh, what roles did you serve? And, and how did the book come to be? Yeah, so Maya and I, I think we met back in around 2013 when I was out at University of Rochester for a um, week-long sort of uh, uh, academic and residence program, and Maya was there. I gave a talk on the work I was doing on measuring ideology, using campaign finance measures, and Maya had the good sense that that it could be really useful to study the courts. Um, I was sort of coming of the opinion that the courts were going to be where the action was um, for the foreseeable future in American politics. Uh, and so this sort of worked as a very sort of uh, natural collaboration in terms of our interests. Um, and uh, it's been a very sort of productive and rewarding research agenda uh, so far. I, I had to count them up. We have about nine articles together and, and in addition to the book. And so the book is really a culmination of a lot of what we had learned and we wanted to expand upon um, uh, beyond sort of the more um, traditional empirical work that, that we had been doing and really sort of speak more generally about what we thought was really happening within the American judiciary and how politics was really pervading it in ways that um, uh, are really measurable and consequential for, for American politics. And it was sort of described as two books in one at the conference that we uh, attended recently. Um, one about sort of the politicians versus the the, the lawyers, um, especially in the states, and one in, uh, about the overall power of lawyers. Which which of those came came first, and how did they join forces? 
So the power of the warriors uh, sort of came second, but it, it, it sort of emerged out of um, like this general observation that lawyers were so pervasive in so many areas of American politics, um, not just in uh, represented in halls of uh, halls of elected power um, uh, and in the executive branch. Um, lawyers, you know, are also incredibly important political actors on the ground among activists and especially among donors. And so part of the reason that we're able to study lawyers using campaign finance measures is because they're so active in politics as, uh, as a group. And, um, so that sort of emerged as, I think, a more important, uh, general, uh, more point that really has a, a lot more to do with sort of American political development, um, and the way our institutions are structured. Uh, and something that we really wanted to elaborate on the book, or in on the book, um, much of the work on sort of measuring sort of the ideology of judges and, and looking at how uh, polarization was affecting the courts, um, we had touched on, but it also uh, tied into these questions about you know the institutions are responding to um, uh, what to these ideological incentives among these different actors, and you see these really interesting dynamics that, that start to emerge once you once you sort of uncover that. So, Maya, you said the U.S. stands out um, for the role of lawyers, both in elected branches and the judiciary. Give us a little bit more of that comparative flavor. Just how overrepresented are lawyers in American government relative to elsewhere, and and why does that matter? So, so on the first point, it's just undoubtedly true that lawyers are way overrepresented. Other professions, but um, kind of even compared to people that you assume are very are already very overrepresented. So one statistic that we have in the book, I know this is one of Adam's favorites because I've heard him say this a bunch, um, is that millionaires are overrepresented in the halls of power in this country. And we always kind of like attack that and we critique that and we think that's not a very good thing. But lawyers are even more overrepresented than millionaires are. So you have a better chance of landing in Congress being a lawyer than you do being a millionaire. So it's just like they're so overrepresented there. There's something like I think in the book, the statistic is something like 0.4 percent or maybe even less of the of the voting electorate. Um, and yet there's something like between 40 and 60 percent of Congress, depending on which Congress you look at. Um, so it's kind of absurd when we when we talk about studying politicians, which is something we do a lot of in political science. What we're really talking about is uh, basically studying mostly lawyers. Um, so having a sense, and one of the things that Adam and I have done a lot of thinking about is kind of like trying to understand what it is about the environment in which lawyers are trained and grew up in and develop intellectually that makes them a little different in the way that they approach the, the, the politics of governing. Um, another thing that's kind of interesting about this, and then I'll actually answer the question, but another thing that's interesting about this is that political scientists actually used to study this as a concept. Like there, there are books that have been written about lawyer legislators in the 50s and 60s, and then we kind of stopped studying it. Um, so there, there are a couple of really influential books from the 50s, 60s, I think maybe even early 70s, that came to the conclusion that lawyer legislators aren't really very different than other legislators. And then the, the research agenda kind of died. And I think to some extent, Adam and I are, are picking it up a little bit because, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but because we do see differences now in what lawyers bring to the table in, in terms of governing. So to, to answer the question, actually, so so what? why does this matter? Well, it matters because lawyers bring two things. One is they bring a legalistic approach to policymaking that's rooted into how they're trained and how they think about problem solving. And they think about problem solving as happening through the law and procedure. So one of the examples that we talk about at length in the book is um, how much of American regulation and policymaking actually happens not just through the courts, but through the process of what Bob Kagan would call adversarial legalism, right? So basic things like, and, and this is not our argument, this is an argument that's well established in the literature, but, right, so things, even things as simple and straightforward that in other countries would be done and handled through the regulatory process or handled through litigation, like consumer protection, right, that's handled um, in, in large swaths of this country through through litigation, um, and that's very unusual. A lot of things having to do with the criminal justice system are handled through the courts as opposed through like public health or mental health interventions. 
Um, so just the way that we solve problems in this country, we tend to think of the courts as kind of one of the first lines for policymaking. Even if we don't call it policymaking, that's, that's what we're doing. Whereas in other countries, that would be handled through different processes. So that's one. Um, and then the other thing, the other way in which lawyers really leave their mark is that they have their own interests, like in terms of their own professional interests. So I mentioned this earlier, but just to kind of echo it one more time, um, we see compared to other countries that have fewer lawyer legislators, um, we see that in this country, law firms are by far more profitable, like on a per capita basis. We have higher litigation costs. We have more people incarcerated and put in jail by a system that prioritizes the legal process and kind of criminal rights of defendants and, and uh, prosecutors. Um, and that has downstream effects throughout all components of our economy. So we show in the book also that um, the United States has the highest levels of inequality. And actually, this varies along with the number of lawyer legislators in a national assembly. So the more lawyers you have in your national assembly, the higher your levels of inequality in a country. Um, and also like in a state. So the higher, the, the more lawyers you have in your state assembly, the deeper the inequality in your state. So um, it's not just that lawyers are kind of enacting their worldview of how policy is made, but they also have distinct policy preferences that are shaped out of the experience of lawyering. Adam, you also show that the lawyers, uh, especially now, are much more liberal than the American public and uh, American politicians uh, overall, and especially those from uh, the top law schools. And so conservatives, in order to, to get uh, even a, a, an equal or near equal share on, uh, the, uh, of judges, have to practice pretty considerable affirmative action for conservative judges. Uh, we've had on several people in the past talking about the conservative legal movement and the Federalist Society, so listeners may be familiar with that sort of, of story. Um, but one reading of your book is that they've only kind of fought to a draw, if that, uh, in the federal judiciary um, because of this disadvantage that, that they start from. Is that a reasonable reading? Uh, on the first part, yeah. Um, on, on the second part, you know, in, in many of the state conflicts, I think that's accurate, but um, it's hard to understate the, so the success that the federal society has had. Um, so what, what we do find is, you know, we're starting with this observation that to become a judge in the United States, we use um, a system we inherited from the English legal system, which is that you elevate members of the, the, the bar to the bench, whereas basically to become a judge, uh, you first have to, be, have to become a lawyer. And so lawyers then become the candidate pool of potential judges that, that one can select. And, and so the underlying ideological or political distribution of that population becomes far more important when we're, we're talking about judicial selection. And lawyers in the contemporary American society tend to be left of center. And by that, we're, we're talking about their revealed preferences, uh, specifically how they donate, which party they're registered um, uh, with, and sort of their voting preferences. Uh, we find that about two-thirds of lawyers are left to center, and we see pretty com uh, pretty strong trends among younger lawyers that is even higher. Um, at elite institutions uh, like Yale Law or uh, Stanford or Harvard uh, that provide a lot of the federal judges, um, we're looking at among um, you know, gra people graduating in recent years, 80 to 90% of them are are identifying as Democrats. And so this does present a bit of a problem for um, conservatives if they want to talk about electing qualified judges, which often we just mean um, not what a general conception of what qualified would mean, but it has, it has to do a lot with sort of pedigree, like where you went to law school and sort of how you've been trained and whether you're seen as sort of a like, high quality lawyer. Uh, and there's a much smaller population of conservatives uh, that come from the, these uh, this sort of ecosystem. And so the idea that there's some sort of concert, um, affirmative action really is um, reflecting the fact that demand for conservative lawyers is higher relative to supply uh, versus um, the, uh, Democrats. If you are a Democrat uh, who graduates from one of these elite law schools, um, 
versus a conservative, your chances of becoming a judge or a clerk, for that matter, are way lower. Um, it's a huge advantage to get a clerkship if you're a conservative, and it's an even larger advantage. We, we estimate that it's about 10 to 12 times more likely that you will become a federal judge um, uh, if you are a conservative from one of these, uh, coming from one of these elite uh, law schools. And that's a pretty big differential, right? So uh, it really is like there is more political demand for conservative judges relative to the population of uh, conservative lawyers. And this is sort of why we see the federal society emerge. Um, it's to serve this function to sort of groom and um, prepare a larger number of conservatives to go into the judiciary. Because if there wasn't this sort of counterbalancing that was going on, it would be even more difficult for um, uh, conservatives to recruit that many judges. And I think when we're looking at the federal courts specifically, uh, there's, there are not many uh, spots relative to the population. You only need you know, one out of 100 uh, lawyers to be, become a judge at the, at the federal level to sort of populate um, the entire federal judiciary. And so it's, it, it, it's not like it's a traditional labor supply problem, but, you know, a lot of conservatives, you know, you take a pretty big pay cut. You could be going into a law firm. And one, one thing we find is that conservative lawyers tend to seek out higher, higher paying positions relative to um, more liberal lawyers. And so that's where a lot of this tension is coming from. But to say that there's a type of affirmative action that's going on, um, it, it does seem to be an accurate portrayal, even though it's not a uh, formal institutional feature. So Maya, you also look at uh, the direct occupational interests of, of lawyers and find that uh, lawyer legislators are more likely to, to vote for them and that the bar associations win these um, court cases. Um, how, how should we compare that to, um, say, uh, business owners or farmers or insurance agents? Um, is this just a case of a, a profession that's overrepresented and out for its own interests, um, or, or should we connect that uh, to this sort of broader pattern of the, the role of litigation or uh, the legal state in the U.S.? So, so I think you scooped my answer a little bit because I don't think those two things are that distinct. So I think one subtlety in what Adam and I have both said that's worth emphasizing is that the legal profession now leans quite a bit to the left, um, particularly among elite law school graduates, but that really wasn't the case historically. And historically, the legal profession was actually very conservative. Um, you know, coming through the mid part of the 20th century, it was very conservative. So it stood for the status quo. It stood for business interests. And so um, moving toward increased legalism or adversarial legalism or an administrative state that was tied up with a judicial structure was very much operating hand in hand with an industry that also had a lot of connections with business and was ideologically very favorable to conservative interests, like business interests. So um, that that's important to mention, right? So the two interests were really well connected. I think in more modern times, the interests of the profession have moved to the left, but the business interests and the professional interests um, have remained somewhat. So um, in terms of like where this leaves us, I think now you have a profession that has very strong feelings about the kind of legal procedures and the process of involving legal adjudication in policymaking, um, but is a bit less, I, I will say this, I think maybe Adam is uh maybe Adam will disagree with me on this, but is a little bit more uncomfortable with the close ties to business uh, kind of per se. And I think now, this is not something we talk about in our book, but I think now there are convert, like there are conversations happening within legal elites about, for example, whether you should keep appointing corporate lawyers to the federal bench or whether you should actually look, be looking at public defenders or government lawyers. And those conversations are starting to happen in a way that points to, a, you know, even a division within legal legal ranks around this issue. So how tied up is the, is the industry with these business interests? Well, very, but people are becoming aware of that and the interests are starting to decouple a little bit. Um, I would say that this conversation, though, is pretty recent. Um, so I think it's maybe been in the last, as someone who studies the courts kind of separately from this project um, and does a lot of work on diversity on the courts, I would say this issue of like having a more diverse pool of lawyers occupy seats on the bench, on the federal bench, has only been really taking off basically in the last two or three years. 
So I would say I would say this is pretty recent. This kind of awareness about how strongly business oriented and how kind of small c conservative the profession is. People have only started talking about it, I think, fairly recently. Adam, your chance to disagree uh, or maybe address this question about um, at, at the conference, we did have um, folks uh, arguing, lefty folks skeptical of your measures, maybe uh, arguing that, um, uh, you know, this is a profession that uh, earns its money uh, from representing business uh, primarily. And so maybe we're not really getting at their their real interests or, or ideology. So so what do you think? No, I don't disagree at all. I think it's it, it is a, a bit complicated by um, this tension that Maya outlines. Um, uh, you know, what, those comments that that were raised during the, the conference, I don't think they were directed at, say, uh, public defenders or public interest attorneys. They, they were directed mostly at the type of lawyers who are working at um, big law firms, um, and you know, it's hard to not conclude that. It, you go and work at a big law firm, um, and this is something that pretty much everyone who, who has done so um, w- would uh, would agree with, that most of your time, your primary function in society um, is to advocate and represent the interests of, uh, you know, wealthy individuals and corporations that have enough money to afford your very expensive services, um, you know, many hundreds or even thousands of dollars per hour. Um, that, that precludes much of the population. And I think that this tension is really very real, especially among younger lawyers. Um, and actually, um, Deborah Brody had written pretty extensively about how this, this tension created a type of cognitive di- dissonance within the profession that was actually very bad for mental health and was generating a lot of turnover. Uh, so I think it's a very real thing that um, there's... On one hand, that's how the, the um, sort of industry is oriented. Uh, that's how you make a lot of money um, as an American lawyer by representing these very wealthy interests. Um, on the flip side, I think if you did a sort of thought experiment and you went up to most sort of uh, you know big law firm associates working at these fancy uh, fancy firms and said you could have the same salary and career advancement um, opportunities um, in doing pro bono work rather than working for, for these clients. I'm sure most of them, or many of them at least, would be very interested, interested in doing so. And um, there's a, lo- a lot of the turnover you see in these, um, in these positions are people leaving to do more public interested work because that wasn't necessarily why they initially entered the legal profession. So I think it really highlights um, an important tension within the profession itself that um, uh, I think is and something that the profession has been grappling with for a very long time. You know, this was the type of discussion that was being had um, a century ago, talking about the orientation of the legal profession, that you had this business oriented wing and then this other sort of function that it served as this public um, facing uh, profession. And how do you sort of negotiate um, those two different sides when they are often very much at odds with each other. Uh, and so I think what these questions about whether lawyers are more um, conservative on average, I think they're pointing to a specific type of attorney that's very prominent. Um, and uh, I think the profession in itself you know, is per- performing a quintessentially conservative role in society, protecting the interests of, uh, of wealthy interests. Um, and so, you know, that being said, um, you know, it, it's also the case that um, you know, we're talking about whether they were sort of a leftist or a set of um, political actors. And I think what we're showing is they're more democratic. And actually, we do find that um, lawyers who work at big law firms are more conservative on average than, uh, uh, than the profession at large, uh, slightly so. But you also have to take into account that most of these big law firms are located in uh, very large urban centers like New York, D.C., San Francisco, L.A., uh, Chicago. That's where the vast majority of these lawyers are actually working. And so relative to the types of places they're living, they're actually a bit more conservative than you would expect. Um, they're also not particularly populist, I think, as a, um, uh, as a group. And that's something like the measures, left-right measures, are not capturing very well. Um, this idea of sort of elitist versus populist um, politics my guess would be that lawyers on average as a profession 
would be far closer to the elitist um, side of, of both parties um, than uh, than what we're seeing uh, than you know uh, AOC or Bernie Sanders, for instance. And so I think the measures do lead out sort of a cultural um, uh, disposition as well. It probably is also closer to sort of what we would think is small C conservative. Maya, you uh, go all the way back to the, the founding, and you mentioned that lawyers um, were more conservative uh, in the past. Um, to the extent you have measures of the lawyer legislators, they, they actually were even more a bigger part of the legislatures in the past. Uh, so, so how much has changed, um, and how much of this story is about the other kinds of processes that you study, where it's a very long-term process and it was locked in long ago, um, versus this is an ongoing uh, role of lawyers in, a, in American politics? So I think, I think it's changed quite a bit over time. There are a couple of ways in which it's changed. So first of all, the, the share of legislators who are lawyers has gone down over time, subtly, you know, maybe not as much as you'd expect. But it's gone down in ways that I think are fairly interesting from a partisan perspective, right? So we've talked about how it used to be a conservative profession, and now it's actually a fairly liberal one, and increasingly so. And so you see that actually um, in the halls of power when you note that more of the lawyer legislators are actually Democrats now than they are Republicans. And you can see this in our last five presidents. So in the last five presidents, we've had three Democrats, two Republicans, the, all the Democrats have been lawyers. Um, or trained as lawyers, and the two Republicans have been uh, business owners in some capacity, or businessmen in some capacity. Um, and that that general trend, that didn't used to be the case, that kind of partisan trend didn't really used to be the case. You'd see lawyers coming, representing both parties, uh, maybe even more Democrats coming out of the South, uh, for reasons that I'm going to talk about in a second. But now it is the case, I think, more and more that the lawyers are increasingly coming from the Democratic ranks, and the Republicans are drawing more of their representation from kind of small business owners um, and other professions. So it's changed in that respect. It's become more partisan in that sense. Um, the other way in which it's changed, and this is something we do talk about in the book, but I think there's more room for exploration here, is that the law was really very, very much uh, viewed as kind of a gatekeeping profession to politics, right? So because it was, lawyers were so overrepresented in Congress and the state assemblies and obviously exclusively overrepresented in the courts. Um, if you as a, as a, a black person or as a woman or as a, someone who's Jewish or any other kind of religious minority, if you couldn't go to law school, then you couldn't become a judge or you wouldn't be elected to, to Congress. Um, so a huge way in which this has changed is in the, you know, desegregated law schools in the forties and, uh, 50s and 60s, um, and then law schools that really started accepting women as co-equals, which really didn't happen until the 70s and 80s. So one of the things we note in the book, you know, just picking up on gender as one example, is that there's a pretty significant lag in women entering Congress that basically correlates 20 years before with women entering law schools, uh, because law school was basically a gate a gateway into um, politically elite positions, not to mention judgeships. So that's changed a lot, right? So now we have majority majorities of law schools at the elite level are actually majority female now. Um, there's solid representation of racial and ethnic minorities, although we could have a longer conversation about whether that's enough, given the important and pivotal role that law schools play in fomenting and culturing um, political talent. Uh, so you would expect these trends to project forward, uh, one would hope, although it's not really clear to me that that will automatically be the case given where, where we're going or what people's uh, preferences are. But I think that's also something that's changed over time. And, and going back to a theme that we've been hitting on again and again and again, the increased diversification of law schools uh, probably has had a role to play in how left-leaning they have gravitated over the last you know, 10 or 20 years. Right. So they're increasingly diverse institutions, um, not just uh, in terms of gender, but also in terms of race and religion in a way that they never were in the middle part of the 20th century. And what about the long term influence uh, issue? I mean, if we were to do a counterfactual where the um, lawyers suddenly lose influence in Congress, um, I wouldn't imagine that we would do administrative procedures differently in the United States. So, I, I mean, how, how important is that kind of continued ongoing influence versus the historical influence? So I think, I mean, this is like kind of extrapolating from our book, but I think 
I think a lot of these things have become kind of deeply embedded in American exceptionalism or thinking about American exceptionalism. So I don't think, for example, adversarial legalism is going to go anywhere anytime soon. So even if you wiped all the lawyers off of a map, which I, you know, off of congressional maps, I guess, um, I, I don't think any of those institutions are likely to change anytime soon. Um, you know, in terms of the counterfactual, like what would you do in the absence of kind of lawyers having this power? I think the balance of power is shifting more and more towards small business owners. Right. And I, I don't I don't see that as a constituency that has like a strong like anything strongly to gain from changing those sorts of institutions. But I don't know if Adam has different projections. That all sounds about right to me um, in terms of like. Institutions are generally pretty stable things. Um, but I was just going to add, so like one of the you know, interesting things, like U.S. has had this very prominent political class dominated by lawyers for a very long time. Um, it's worth pointing out that in most countries, lawyers are overrepresented relative to their size of the population. But in some countries, they're not very well re- represented at all. So if you look at the Netherlands, for instance, um, where, when we looked at... Um, number of lawyers and national legislators, there was only one at the time, right? And so there is this sort of idea that law and politics are really closely connected. You need to, you need to have like a lot of input from the legal system to properly do politics. Um, but it's hard to argue that the Netherlands is in much worse shape than the United States right now. And so I think there's just, you know, there are a lot of ways to structure a democratic society. And I think over the long term, there would be more pressure pushing towards what would presumably be a little bit more like the European system, where there is government control of regulatory bodies that do a lot of regulatory function, uh, whereas in the United States, as Maya had mentioned, um, much of it is litigated. And so I think, you know, there are questions about which is a more effective system of regulation. Um, I think in, there, there are, you know, uh, pros and cons of each, but I think corporations at least would probably say that they're happier with the American system right now than they are with, say, the EU on a, on a lot of dimensions of regulation. So in the States, you do have uh, leverage to look at uh, changes in how judges are selected, and you find that uh, Republicans have been favoring partisan elections um, and, and appointments from elected officials, um, but that uh, they sort of haven't gotten as, as far as, as they could to uh, move judges uh, to, to the right. Um, and it seems like there's a long way to go that uh, liberals should be prepared for more, um, more action there, um, opportunities uh, by Republicans to move uh, the, the courts uh, rightward, but from a, from a liberal base in most states. Is that a, is that a reasonable reading? Yes, I, I think it is. Um, in fact, so the Brennan Center um, has, has collected, um, you know, a, a, a list of 42 bills that have been introduced since the 2020 elections, um, predominantly by Republican uh, state legislators, uh, attempting to do exactly that. And uh, one of the more sort of really interesting and fascinating parts of um, the work we did in the book for us was just how much institutional variation we see in selection mechanisms and how we pick judges in the states in the U.S. Um, you know, in, in a way, in terms of institutional like variety, you know, judicial selection is sort of like the Galapagos of American politics. Um, every state has this sort of hodgepodge of different ways that they select lower courts up to the, the state supreme court. Uh, whether it be through partisan elections, nonpartisan elections, uh, a whole variety of different types of nominating uh, system, uh, nominating commissions um, uh, that are also referred to as assisted selection, um, as, as well as just uh, gubernatorial appointment uh, and legislative appointment. Uh, so we have across the different states a whole different variety of ways that um, states are selecting judges. Another thing that you see is that these institutions have changed pretty dramatically over the long run. Pretty much every state has modified the way that it, has, it selects judges. Um, most states doing so repeatedly over over the last two hundred years, and um, and so this makes it a really fertile ground for you know most institutions tend to be very stable. Uh, relative to that, judicial selection seems to be very very changeable and. Uh, part of it, I think, ties back to this theory that we're, we're trying to outline that there is these um, these political incentives that emerge uh, because we're selecting judges from lawyers. And actually, going back to the history of like 
one of the systems that uh, Democrats are are most likely to be protective of right now are these merit commissions, where you have a slate of usually uh, individuals that are selected both by um, usually the state bar association and then uh, some nominated by the, the governor. And there are a number of systems of how to populate these commissions. But they essentially look at a list or either create a list of who they think are the most qualified candidates to become judges or, or at least assess whether um, a given nomination uh, it, it meets some, some level of qualifications. And this system was actually a GOP innovation back in the 1930s when we saw a very different dynamic nationally where, as Maya mentioned, lawyers at the time were this very conservative group. Um, they were a power base within the Republican Party, uh, one that was very much a thorn in the side of the New Deal Democrats and FDR. Uh, and um, basically the Missouri Commission, or Missouri system, which is what's um, sort of innovated these merit systems, um, was designed to push back against what was seen as politicization of the judiciary uh, by FDR Democrats. And uh, it was actually Eisenhower, uh, who was the first uh, president to invite the American Bar Association to rate, uh, rate judicial nominees at the federal level. Uh, a Republican was coming in after a long period of Democratic control. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, uh, you know, half a century later, it was George W. Bush um, who decided that that system was no longer working for Republicans. <laughs> this idea that we should be judging uh, nominees primarily on the basis of this idea of merit or qualifications. And so you, you can sort of see that, you know, abstracted from sort of the, the contemporary political context, um, there are very clear uh, sort of partisan incentives at play when we're looking at how efforts to reform the judiciary. And this is very much true at the state level. So you imply, or at least the, the model implies, that uh, this all would be reversed if uh, judges were mostly Republicans. Um, but it does seem like the good government groups are more aligned with the Democratic Party generally. Um, so is this just a kind of a partisan dispute or is there a wider dispute between the parties about sort of whether we should have expert controlled institutions versus direct elections? I think you could sort of compare it to like um, debates that are going on over gerrymandering, uh, where Democrats um, for partisan reasons, right? So if you are a member of a party, um, you, you should be advocating for the interests of your party to at least some extent. And you're balancing that against some notion of what you think is in the interest of good government reforms. Uh, I think Democrats are largely genuine in their belief that nonpartisan commissions are a better way to go. Um, but it's also aligned with their partisan incentives as well. Um, and Republicans are moving in a very different direction, not just on issues of gerrymandering and, uh, and, and voting access, where they're turning against many uh, Democratic uh, institutions in ways that, that, are, that are quite frightening. But we're also seeing that at in, in, in the courts as well, right? And so I, I think it is a mixture of this. So I think for the most part, people think that good governance uh, also has uh, something to do with how they think policy should be generated. And if they think there's a system that's locking them out or disadvantaging their party, um, it's pretty natural to think that that's bad for uh, the, way, the way the system is working. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's, purely cynical efforts on, on the right. But you also have to take into account, it's not like Republicans are going out and saying, we shouldn't be selecting qualified judges. We shouldn't be selecting people who um, like uh, know what's going on in, in the legal system. Um, they're making very different arguments. They're making the arguments along the lines of the way the system's set up is giving too much control to them. And so I think if the roles were reversed, as we saw you know, uh, nearly 100 years ago, yeah, we would be seeing basically the opposite dynamics. Um, and that's just sort of a natural outpouring of how um, political power operates. I have a slightly different take than Adam on this particular question, although I think Adam agrees with me in the end, which is that I don't, thinking about the roles being reversed is really hard because we're in a particular moment where expertise has become very partisan. And that's the case, not just in law, but basically across any other kind of expertise domain that you could think of. So if you look at climate science, like the climate scientists are by and large, not overt partisans, but I think also by and large are not voting 
uh, for Republican Party candidates. And Republicans know this and Democrats know this. And therefore, climate science is becoming politicized by virtue of the fact that expertise is becoming partisan. And that makes it very challenging for the for the party that's not the party of the experts. And that's right now, that's the Republican Party. And I, I'd, given kind of the political climate in the country, I do not see that changing anytime soon, right? So if you're the Republican Party, what do you do? And it's not just a question of judges, but it's also a question of climate scientists, engineers, scientists, um, thought leaders across arts and culture, right? What do you do? Uh, even athletics, right? Uh, as we saw kind of, as we're seeing in the last Olympics, right? So it's like across a bunch of different domains, what do you do? You uh, choose experts, on the basis of politics and political views and policy preferences. So, you know, in terms of the climate scientists that that Trump appointed, um, you know, there were there were more likely to be kind of chosen on the basis of partisanship and kind of the the policy views that they held as opposed to like, quote unquote, pure expertise. So it's not just something that we're seeing in the courts. We're seeing it like the, the selection on political factors is something that is very strongly incentivized for the Republican Party and Republican Party elites that's not incentivized right now for Democrats. Um, so if the, if the positions were reversed, I think we would see the similar patterns hold, but it's just very hard for me to see the positions being reversed anytime soon. I think that's exactly right. Um, the same read I have um, on sort of expertise in American politics more generally. And I also think it's worth pointing out that this is a problem uh, that's getting worse <laughs> in turn for Republicans. Um, younger, um, so people who are getting advanced degrees um, across the board, it's not just academics and lawyers, it's also doctors now um, that we're seeing this, this same dynamic emerging um, where Republicans are, you know, basically have turned against a lot of what I think um, the people who work with empirical evidence um, are operating on. And so I think that is a really important um, point that the mind is making, that there is, there is a fair amount of cynicism in the way that sort of this anti-intellectualism that's really been growing in the Republican Party um, is really sort of like doubling down. And it's going to become an issue where there are going to be very few people who have expertise that actually are conservative in a lot of fields. Um, and we're already seeing the, the sort of political fallout of that. But Maya, when it comes to your data on the federal judiciary, it does look like a more traditional polarizing story uh, where Democrats are in, uh, appointing increasingly liberal uh, judges, just like Republicans are appointing increasingly conservative justices. Um, so uh, talk about that polarization and how we should interpret it. Um, obviously, it is a popular interpretation to say uh, the courts are becoming more like legislative institutions where people are voting for their their preferred outcome. Um, that hasn't generally been the sort of the way that judicial politics literature looks at it, but your measures find a, a lot more traditional polarization than some of the others. So should we think about it as another legislature? So I think with the federal courts, it's really important to keep in mind that they're named by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. So they reflect the preferences of those two. Right. There's no other input into what our federal courts look like. There's no role for the public to play and there's no moderating role in this case for like the legal profession to play other than in this in this weird way where they assign like ratings to candidates, but they don't really do that anymore. So so they're kind of like out of the system. Right. So it's really reflective of what the president wants and then also what the Senate wants. Those two. So if you have, um, you know, a very, very conservative president. And you have a very conservative Senate who wants to play along and really prioritizes judicial confirmations, then guess what? You're going to get a series of appointments that are very, very conservative. And so what we've seen in the federal courts in the last five years, uh, five or six years, is a Trump administration that came in with many vacancies uh, owed, <laughs> owed exclusively to the efforts of Senate Republicans. And he was able to make a number of very, very conservative appointments. And as we know from other work in political science, the um, there's been polarization in Congress and it's been asymmetric in the sense that it's been the Republican Party shifting to the right um, over time. And it should in no way be surprising that that's mostly what we see reflected in the federal courts because the federal courts are reflective of the preferences of congressional Republicans and Senate Republicans in tandem with the White House. 
So um, with Trump, you're seeing very, very conservative appointments that are pushing the Republican appointments onto the courts to the right. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think that Joe Biden, you know, one of your points of your question was like, will these trends continue, right? So is Joe Biden going to appoint extremely, extremely left-leaning judicial voices? I think the answer is probably not. He himself is sort of more of a moderate Democrat, but he's been pushed to the left on some issues. And um, there are signs that he's appointing, he's appointing pretty progressive uh, candidates. But is that going to... um, outweigh or um, cancel out kind of the conservative leaning of the recent Republican appointments? You know, I, I don't think so. Like, I don't think it's going to all, all of a sudden become like symmetric polarization. But this is something that I think it's a little bit too early to tell, given that he's been in office now for you know a year and a half. So, you know, time will tell. And I think a lot is going to depend also on future Republican administrations and the kinds of candidates that they appoint, if they're going to be kind of consistent with this trend in the Republican Party moving increasingly to the right, then um, if that's the case, then the courts will reflect that. And and part of that, I think, boils down to the framework that Adam and I argue in the book, that the courts really are reflective of what we call this judicial tug of war between all of these players, um, the legal profession and party elites. And in the case of the federal courts, the party elites have all of the power. And so the federal courts really reflect the preferences of party elites. And in this case, they're reflecting the preferences of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And in the case of the Republican Party, they're they're going to the right. Um, so they're 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 going farther and farther to the right in a way that kind of reflects broader trends in national level politics. Um, now, a separate question, I think, is are judges acting more like legislators? Um, I don't think they're acting any differently than they have been acting historically. We know from lots of research in judicial politics that ideology powerfully predicts the way that judges vote. And that's always been the case. That's not a new thing. I think what we have now is we have better measures of it. So we we can present that in a more crystallized and nuanced way. And so we can track that more carefully. And then we also see I think increasingly distinct patterns with Republican judges kind of being more and more conservative. And we can pick that up using measures like the one that Adam, the ones that Adam and I use in our work that that weren't available to scholars uh, until we started working on it. Um, So you couldn't really see those patterns as, as clearly as you can now. So I don't think anything has changed in the way that they're actually behaving. I think the trends have changed as the Republican Party has moved to the right. And I think we can detect those changes uh, in a bit more of a straightforward fashion. Adam, you uh, obviously have produced uh, data on lots of different professions. In the book, you show that academics, uh, the media and tech companies also lean to the left. You've also studied uh, trends among doctors. Um, what, what can we learn from these uh, ideological positions of, of the occupations? Um, is there... Uh, a is there truth to the conservative argument that sort of there is a, a broader occupational liberal elite um, and that lawyers are just one piece of that? I'm, I'm mostly interested in sort of um, sort of the ideological leanings of different professions um, more generally. So as you mentioned, like lawyers, doctors, tech workers, um, and one of the interesting patterns that seems to be pervasive among these different groups is that there has been a very strong trend of the left um, that is generationally driven. Um, So younger professionals are overwhelmingly liberal uh, right now. Um, Again, this is a reversal of what used to be the case that the professional class was very aligned with the Republican Party. And so we've seen a complete reversal um, over the last century or so. And you know, it's, it's important to sort of understand this for a number of reasons. One goes to sort of the work done by Nick Carnes and others showing how overrepresented professionals are within um, the halls of power, um, that this is a group that is heavily overrepresented in Congress and other um, other areas. There's also, they also have other levers of power that aren't just um, purely political in nature, right? So we're seeing all this conflict going on about tech companies, uh, where Republicans are furious at tech companies because they say they're too liberal, and uh, Democrats are really concerned about tech companies, or many of them, or at least progressives, um, because they are increasingly looking like monopolistic powers, right? And so um, it it is this interesting dynamic that there's this very affluent 
and um, uh, sort of well-resourced group uh, that is also mobilized across these different professions. They tend to be much more likely to be active in politics, especially when it comes to donating money, um, tend to be getting, are very liberal or getting more so. Um, uh, you know, academia, I think, was just um, uh, sort of a bellwether for the rest of um, uh, sort of the professional class in that sense. And so, you know, I, I do a lot of work in money and politics, and I think um, understanding what professionals are doing and sort of the trends going on within that group is really important to understanding what's going on and projecting forward what's going to happen in money and politics. Um, billionaires, for instance, can give massive amounts of money to spend on independent expenditures, which basically largely goes towards um, campaign advertising. Um, but the bread and butter of most campaigns still comes from direct contributions. And that is increasingly dominated by the professional class. And so the Republicans are going to find it harder and harder to actually compete in fundraising relative to Democrats, given these trends, um, that there's just very few people um, who are of, you know, can give like two or three thousand dollars to a candidate, um, which is basically dominated by these professionals. Um, and it's increasingly the case that they're giving exclusively to Democrats. And so we've seen this trend happen. It's also interesting to see um, sort of the dynamics within different professions emerge. Uh, within the medical profession, for instance, younger doctors are uh, increasingly progressive. Uh, like among doctors under 40, um, the candidate that raised the most money in 2016 was Bernie Sanders by a long shot, right? And this is, again, it's sort of this reversal. And we've seen it sort of... Um, uh, come to a head at, at, at sort of AMA meeting, or American Medical Association meetings, where younger doctors are pushing really hard for universal health care, and older, more established doctors are still of the mind that they really don't want to go that route. And so I think it's part of this sort of these power structures and sort of understanding how that's been changing over time. Professions are extremely important um, groups within American society. And I think also there's um, something to be said that it's not just lawyers um, that seem to be under-regulated and not, per and not as oriented towards the public interest as they could be. I think those critiques also apply very much to the medical profession and uh, academia as well, uh, where you know, we're looking at massive debts that people are taking out. And um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see whether sort of um, a more liberal set of professionals are going to be more more willing to accept the types of public interesting, interested regulations uh, that could potentially be detrimental to their own professional status or income um, and, and not fight them as hard when, if they are ever sort of pushed at a national level. And so like, there are a lot of interesting questions that I think emerge. I'll, I'll make one last point, which is the point that Maya made, that um, studying these groups is also studying um, expertise in a way. And those dynamics have been really, really sort of on display over the last few years. So Maya, one group of experts who might be seen as having a uh, self-interest in the legal profession and, uh, in, and, and have both the left of academia and uh, lawyers is the legal academia. And you are uh, studying an area that's sort of been, uh, that, that traditionally had its home in legal academia. What does the social science uh, perspective bring to these issues? And are there blind spots in how legal academia thinks about its own role? Yeah, I think I, some of my best friends are law professors. So let me stipulate that at the beginning. Um, I think for having interacted with a lot of law professors on the topics of judicial reform and the topics that Adam and I talk about in our book, I think, I think a, a possible difficulty for legal academics in approaching the way that the problems the way that social scientists do is that they were trained as lawyers. And so they're trained in a way that puts the courts at a, a very significant apex in terms of like this hierarchy of, of um, institutions. They tend to think that the rule of law is a strong positive, that legal processes are very important, that the courts are not necessarily beyond reproach, but are important, non, non-partisan, I, I can qualify that a bit, but kind of like outside of the scope of regular political processes and are something that are, are admired. Um, 
and kind of this intangible uh, environment, like this environment that they're trained in, I think leads them to have a lot of respect for legal institutions that political scientists just do not have. So political scientists approach things totally differently. We do not have kind of this humble respect for judicial institutions. Instead, we take them and we approach them as we would any other kind of political institution. We um, criticize them. We poke at them. We try to measure things like judicial ideology. We question the very nature of how these institutions are set up. We question um, kind of basic fundamentals of how judges um, interact with each other. I think in ways that if you're a law professor, you tend not to do that um, because you hold up these institutions to, to the you, you put them on this pedestal almost, right? And being being a judge is very prestigious for a lawyer. And because political scientists don't have those kind of incentives or that kind of dynamic, we are much more critical in how we approach these institutions. And I've encountered that kind of again and again and again, where political scientists will will make a, a point about partisanship that seems blindingly obvious to, pol- to a political scientist, but but it's maybe untoward um, or uncomfortable for a lawyer to consider. And in part, that's because it's kind of, you know, saying something like judges are partisan or politicians in robes or something like that is kind of like an affront to the entirety of what lawyers do. Um, and so I think that's kind of a difference in the way that political scientists and lawyers approach the topics that Adam and I approach in our book. But I will say that, and this, this is something that Adam picks up on in some of the things he said, I think there's a generational shift happening in how even law professors talk about these institutions. So I've noticed in the last three or four years, there's been a new crop of young law professors who are bold, who are making fresh arguments about the courts, who are talking pragmatically about the role of ideology and partisanship. They're pushing on Democratic Party elites and legal elites and thinking about retirements and who should be retiring and who isn't but should be retiring. And they're talking about the court in a way that's very fresh to me um, and unusual for law professors. And so I think that even that, even that is all changing. Um, and it could be, as Adam says, that the new generation is kind of like more left-leaning, more progressive. Um, it could be that, but it could also be the, the political argument, political science arguments about the courts are are hitting home for people. And our arguments about the way that the courts operate and thinking institutionally about incentives and partisan incentives and about ideology, you know, it could be the case that that people are listening in law schools and they're thinking about the courts in a different way. And it's, it's been cool to see that change. So what's the most likely uh, Bonnikins in volume two? Where are you uh, going from here? So one thing we've sort of been um, uh, thinking about is sort of looking more at these questions of reform um, and what it could and potentially should look like. You know, a lot of what we sort of find in the book ha- comes back to this one feature of American politics, that the courts are incredibly powerful political actors, and right? So they've been like placed in this position where there's this enormous political prize and there's so much conflict over um, who is populating the courts um, that, you know, this is spilling over into how the courts are actually operating, right? And we're sort of, in the zeitgeist right now is about these questions about um, reform. Democrats and progressives particularly are pushing to expand the court, um, introduce uh, uh, term limits, essentially, or introduce um, limits on how long judges may be serving, um, you know, in there are also questions about, you know, that how do we actually think about maybe disentangling uh, the courts from the legal profession to some extent? Um, uh, Mike and I have talked a little bit, it's sort of, as you can tell, like we agree on about 95% of stuff and we sort of have interesting um, uh, sort of different perspectives on uh, about the other 5% of stuff. So um, working through I- these ideas about what is the best way to go about reform is interesting. We're actually discussing um, uh, a proposal out there, there would be sort of like a rule of seven, which is if um, the Supreme Court, sort of pressuring the Supreme Court to adopt a rule uh, where they would need a supermajority um, to overturn congressionally passed legislation. And whether that would be a good idea or a bad idea, I think um, there's a lot to really explore before you can make a good determination of it. I'm a little more bullish on it than Maya, but I also share a lot of reservations about it. 
And so I think these are some of the sort of ideas that we're thinking about um, moving towards in the, in the future. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous episodes on how the Federalist Society changed the Supreme Court vetting process, how the Supreme Court shapes public support, and how court nominees polarize interest groups. Thanks to Maya Sin and Adam Bonica for joining me. Please check out the Judicial Tug of War and then listen in next time. <laughs>